Hi, this is Lily DeHoyas Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Thank you for joining me this week. This is Matthew 9 and 10, Mark 5 and Luke 9 in our New Testament studies. It's already going fast. The year is marching on. I wanted to start with a quote by Charles Ryrie. It's not a name I know, but I like this quote about just studying the Bible in general. He said, The Bible is the greatest of all books. To study it is the noblest of all pursuits. To understand it, the highest of all goals. Now, we can add to this our understanding that the Book of Mormon is the most perfect of all books written on this earth. So this person is a Christian but doesn't know about the Book of Mormon. So this is not to elevate the Bible above the Book of Mormon, but to see them both as joint witnesses of Jesus Christ, to recognize that the Bible does contain some errors, the Book of Mormon, many fewer. If they are the errors, they are the errors of worthy men, but certainly a book that is a clear testament to Jesus Christ. The Bible, in spite of some of those mistakes or flaws or omissions, is nevertheless a great book. And when we look at people in the history of the world who have had only the Bible, not the Book of Mormon, who have still risen to the stature of incredible Christian life, I'm always impressed by that, and I think how much greater should our worship be? How much more should we be a Zion people, a people conformed to the image of God's Son, since we have both the Bible and the Book of Mormon, but the Bible alone? I think it's wonderful that many people have celebrated having this record of the Old Testament, which prophesies of the Messiah to come, and then the coming of the Messiah in the New Testament and the example of his tremendous life, his walk and talk with the people, his teachings, his mighty miracles, ultimately his death and resurrection and his conquering of death and hell on our behalf and on behalf of all those who will accept it. So anyway, I like that quote. The Bible is the greatest of all books. To study it is the noblest of all pursuits. To understand it, the highest of all goals. And we could add to that the Book of Mormon and the words of the prophets, which are such a gift to us, and we have them in such abundance today. Well, I'm not going to go through all the great miracles that are in in these chapters. Again, you know, they're trying to give us sort of a chronological order, although, of course, it's impossible because we have different people telling the story, different apostles telling us the story, and so there is some back and forth, some of the things that we saw last week in one book or repeated in another book this time. And of course, they each have a little bit different details occasionally, but the stories are wonderful. They're pretty straightforward. I'm just going to comment briefly on a few things. Again, please don't think this is a comprehensive treatment of these chapters. There's much to be enjoyed and gained from doing just what Charles Ryrie said to study it and seek to understand it. We have the story of Jairus's daughter, and this is a lovely story that's told both in Matthew and Mark. And My favorite line from this is actually repeated in the curriculum, this study, this this week, from Mark 5, 36. It's kind of interesting. This story in Mark is interrupted by another story, because as Christ is going to respond to Jairus' request to go to heal his daughter, who is sick, he is touched by the woman with the issue of blood. She touches the hem of his garment, remember, and she has such faith that she is healed, and it's kind of an you know amazing story, uh, interesting story that Jesus, this is Mark 5, verse 30, Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned about in the press and said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples, 
as they often are, are confused. And they say, Thou seest the multitude thronged thee, and sayest thou who touched me? Apparently there was a lot of jostling going on as they walked through the multitudes. And so they're like, what do you mean who touched you? <laughs> Lots of people are touching you. But Christ had felt the power of healing, the power of godliness, the power of virtue leaving him as it entered the woman who believed. And so he turns and he finds her and she's a little afraid knowing what she's done. And she falls before him and tells him what happens. And he says, thy faith had made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. So, I mean, it really is amazing how many miracles are just happening, one on top of the other. The multitudes, again, no wonder they are thronging him. No wonder they are, are pressing upon him. They see that here is a man who is healing the blind, the lepers, the sick. He can even restore life, which he does now to Jairus' daughter also. He did the son of the widow we saw last week. But now Jairus' daughter, who is sick, when Jairus comes to Christ, now a servant comes and says, don't bother the master because she has died. And Jairus is, is devastated. But here is this great line that I mentioned, Mark 5, 36. When he hears the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, which is, is Jairus, be not afraid, only believe. Now that's a pretty high order. Jairus has just heard that his daughter has left this life, that she's dead. And the Savior says, don't be afraid. Don't let that bother you. Only believe. Now, I want to emphasize this. I emphasize this a lot, as you know. I think it's so incredibly important that we develop our trust in God, that we believe what God tells us. We believe the words of the Savior. As spoken in Scripture, as told us by the prophets, as we receive in the temple in our covenants, brothers and sisters, the Lord keeps promises. He is a teller of truth. He cannot lie. We can trust him. We can trust him, but it's an exercise of faith that is required. And I just wanted to mention something. It's kind of random, but sometimes while I'm working at my desk, I'll put on some YouTube videos and catch up on news or different subjects. And I saw a clip. I didn't watch the whole episode, but I watched a clip of a Joe Rogan podcast where he had a guy on there that I guess he knows because they seemed like they were friends and had spoken before. But this man whose name, I uh, forgive me, I don't remember, was saying that he was an atheist before, but then he started actually reading the materials of Christianity, reading the Bible, and he became a believer. And he said, now I believe it. I believe that Christ, you know, is the Son of God. I believe that he died and resurrected he was stating this belief. And Joe Rogan was, you know, pretty respectful with him. But you could hear the skepticism in his questioning. I mean, he wasn't rude about it, but he was like, but how do you know? Like, or where's the proof, basically? And and that was that was the gist of Joe Rogan's response. Like, how do you know this for sure? Like, where is the proof? And the other guy didn't necessarily find great articulation, I would say, although I appreciated that he continue to express his belief and does seem to be a believer now. But I thought, you know, it is hard to describe that different ways of knowing, right? I mean, people want to know through scientific evidence, whatever that means. And have we not understood how 
Science moves. It's a moving target. It's just the latest hypothesis. Again, didn't we learn some things, at least through COVID, if not before? As I've mentioned so many times before, I used to tell my kids, science is just the latest hypothesis. So anyway, it's always ironic to me that there are people who want like scientific proof, quote unquote, whatever that is supposed to be, because it changes constantly. And if we have any wisdom at all, we don't hang our entire life's journey on the latest hypothesis. Doesn't mean we can't benefit from the advances technologically and, and medical, whatever, other things that have happened, but but we should be wise and we should always judge all of that in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because God does not make mistakes. So once again, the question is, you know, are we going to believe what God says or are we going to pretend to rely, well, not pretend perhaps, but seem to rely on whatever constitutes evidence in our view? Again, what is that? Because we have limited eyes to see. We have a veil in place. We don't have access to to being in our Heavenly Father's presence through physical means, but we do through spiritual means. And for us to not believe until we see, I mean, seeing can be deceptive as well. Don't want to spend a ton of time on that, but I just think it's important to realize that God wants us to become acquainted with him. He wants us to believe what he says, and it is ultimately a choice. It's not about proof. Faith is the power by which worlds were created. If we want to become like our Heavenly Father, we need to develop that kind of faith, and it comes from choosing to believe. And as we know, the definition of faith includes believing when we cannot see. That's kind of the whole point is to believe what we cannot see. So let me quote a few things on miracles that I thought were interesting. This is by a man named Tim Keller, not acquainted with him, but he said this, Christ's miracles were not the suspension of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order. They were a reminder of what once was prior to the fall and a preview of what will eventually be a universal reality once again a world of peace and justice without death, disease, or conflict. That's kind of that's kind of nice. I don't think I read that perfectly, but anyway, they were a reminder of what once was prior to the fall and a preview of what will eventually be a universal reality once again, a world of peace and justice without death, disease, or conflict. Here from St. Augustine, Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. Well, that's talking again about trusting him. If we can value his word above all, then we are truly valuing Christ. Here's a statement Augustine made on miracles. Miracles are not contrary to nature, but only contrary to what we know about nature. That's really good. Listen to that again. Miracles are not contrary to nature, but only contrary to what we know about nature. Again, it's only contrary to our latest hypothesis, right? So why would we put trust in that over the power of God? Here's a statement by Charles Spurgeon, also a name I do not know otherwise, but I like this quote. The gospel, which they so greatly needed, they would not have. The miracles, which Jesus did not always choose to give, they eagerly demanded. Think about that for a while. The people thronged him. They wanted the miracles. 
And sometimes they received them and sometimes they did not. And that is the case now. Sometimes miracles are given and sometimes miracles are withheld until a later time, perhaps even in the resurrection. And nevertheless, that seems to be what we want of Christ. We want the miraculous healings. We want the miraculous rescues. And they sometimes come in this life and sometimes they do not. And certainly when they come, they don't always come in the time that we would like them. But are we receiving the gospel? Because it is the gospel which we so greatly need. And we've talked about this so many times. Savior theology, which is the doctrine of Christ that we, with Adam and Eve, that we fell, that God gave us covenants by which we could return unto him through the power of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that it is through Christ, through faith in Christ, repentance, baptism, the entering of the covenant path, and receiving the Holy Ghost by the power of the Holy Priesthood, that we can return unto him in the way that he has said, by keeping those covenants, by obeying the commandments. That is the gospel, and we desperately need it. But so often we push that aside, and we just want the miracles. Just take away all my troubles instead of realizing that, no, it is in the process of dealing with troubles. And yes, the enabling power of Jesus Christ that allows us to grow and strengthen through those troubles, that we are living the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we desperately need, and which is the solution to all of life's problems, ultimately, is to live the gospel, to obey the commandments, to enter and keep sacred covenants. That is the way. Christ is the way. And miracles are, are all going to be, you know, sort of subsumed by the great miracle of Christ's coming and his putting to rest, you know, defeating evil once and for all and to put to rest all our earthly cares and woes, entering a millennial time, finally the, the last great battle, and then the perfect judgment and resurrection. We need the gospel Sometimes we get miracles when it is appropriate to suspend the laws of nature that we can see for the ones that we can't. Here's David Wilkerson. How quickly we forget God's great deliverances in our lives. How easily we take for granted the miracles he performed in our past. We do forget rather quickly. I remember that President Kimball used to say that maybe the greatest word in all of Scripture was remember. We need to remember the goodness of God. Here is a statement by C.S. Lewis. Miracles are a retelling in small letters of the very same story which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. I'm going to say it again. It's really beautiful. Miracles are a retelling in small letters of the very same story which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. And here's one by Friedrich Buchner. It is not the objective proof of God's existence that we want, but the experience of God's presence. And this is kind of what I was talking about with that Joe Rogan podcast. He's asking for objective proof of God's existence, as if that would really prove anything to anybody. We know that faith do not follow signs anyway. And that's a misunderstanding of the whole purpose of life, which is to exercise faith, to develop our trust in God, to pierce the veil with our faith. It is not death which pierces the veil. It is faith that pierces the veil. So that is the experience of this life. So again, even though he's asking for objective proof of God's existence, what Buchner is saying here is that it is truly the experience of God's presence that we should seek. That's what we really need. 
And then going on, he says, that is the miracle we are really after. And that is also, I think, the miracle that we really get if we seek it and if we will let it in. This one is anonymous, but it's worth sharing. I have learned to use the word impossible with the greatest caution. (laughs) That's pretty beautiful. And again, another one from St. Augustine. I never have any difficulty believing in miracles since I experienced the miracle of a change in my own heart. Nicely put. Now remember, just in April conference of 2022, so not quite a year ago, President Nelson in his speech on spiritual momentum, gave five suggestions. And the fourth was to seek and expect miracles. So I'm just going to read what President Nelson said. Moroni assured us that God has not ceased to be a God of miracles. Every book of scripture demonstrates how willing the Lord is to intervene in the lives of those who believe in him. Again, signs follow belief. They do not precede. They follow belief. He parted the Red Sea for Moses, helped Nephi retrieve the brass plates, and restored his church through the prophet Joseph Smith. Each of these miracles took time and may not have been exactly what those individuals originally requested from the Lord. That's all good counsel right there. (laughs) We got to be flexible, right? In the same way, the Lord will bless you with miracles if you believe in him, doubting nothing. Do the spiritual work to seek miracles. That is our exercise of faith. It is choosing to believe, choosing to trust. President Nelson continues, prayerfully ask God to help you exercise that kind of faith. I promise that you can experience it for yourself, that Jesus Christ giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Few things will accelerate your spiritual momentum more than realizing the Lord is helping you to move a mountain in your life. Really beautiful promises there. Now, I have said this before. I'm going to say it again, that miracles generally happen when there's trouble. I mean, we don't need miracles when there's no tempest in the sea. If Pharaoh's army isn't chasing you, you don't need to part the Red Sea. You don't need the miracles of healing if you're not sick or ill or dying. So obviously, seeking miracles is something that's going to come along at times when there is trouble. But there's still a beautiful admonition there because we will have trouble. I mean, look around, right? (laughs) The world's falling apart. But we can seek and expect those miracles if we continue to exercise our faith and increase our trust in the Lord. We need to read his words and believe them. We need to practice believing them. Remember, we've talked about thoughts earlier this year and the power of our thoughts and how many of them tend to be negative. But we can replace those negative thoughts with thoughts of faith, with efforts to believe. That's exactly what he told Jairus. He said, to believe, be not afraid, only believe. And we can practice that too. He says that to people all through here. He says it to his apostles as he's trying to prepare them for their ministry. And that is another big theme of these chapters, that Christ is trying to give instructions and help prepare his 12 disciples as they become apostles so that he can have them in in a state where they can carry on the work after his death and resurrection. So he's constantly telling them the same message to increase their faith so he can endow them with power. In other words, faith comes before the miracle. 
Faith precedes the miracle. So we hear this again and again, and sometimes people think, well, he's being a little harsh. Well, not really, because he is recognizing that his time on the earth with them and his personal ministry is very brief. And they need to be prepared to carry on the work of being witnesses of Christ and establishing that early Christian church, which will end with an apostasy, but will still provide a great record in the epistles of Paul and other epistles written by other apostles that are included here in the New Testament that have such power in them to teach the gospel and to help us prepare for his second coming. So what does he say? Remember, like last time and this time, well, it doesn't talk about the tempest this time, does it? But last time we read about the calming of the storm. And what does he say? He says, oh, ye of little faith. And that's demanding, right? (laughs) I mean, storms can capsize boats. They can, you know, drown people. There can be trouble. But he's like, no, no, you've got to exercise your faith. You can practice believing that the Lord will be with you. Or, as we talked about last time, can reach his hand through the storm to calm his child. And then in Luke 9, I think it's verse 41, or verse 40, actually, there's a father who has a son possessed of a devil, and he comes to the Savior and asks him to cast out the devil. And he says that he had asked the disciples, but the disciples were unable to do that. And what is it that that Christ says in, you know, turning to the apostles before he casts out the devil? Let's read that. It's verse 41. And again, it, you know, I mean, you could see it as a little bit harsh, but it's not harsh. He's saying you are going to have to be prepared for what is to come. So he says, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? And then he says, Bring thy son hither, and he casts out the devil. Now, again, why is he being so stern with his apostles? Because they need to step up. Because this life is not for sissies. Because if we're going to build the kingdom, if we're going to choose glory, if we're going to build Zion, we need to be anti-fragile. We need to have the faith that can move mountains. That doesn't happen when we're weak. That doesn't happen when we're fragile. It doesn't happen when we tremble like a reed in the wind. We need to be firm and steadfast in our belief. We need to know that it is not our power that is on the line. It is God's power, and it is endless Remember, we have to be careful about using the word impossible, just as that writer said. We need to be faithful and believing that God will keep his promises in his time and in his way, but that it will happen and that we can be a part of building that kingdom if we put ourselves in a path of belief, of trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his word. We're going to spend some time now on Matthew 10, which is a chapter in the New Testament that I find that I quote quite often in counseling. So I'm delighted to have a chance to talk about Matthew 10 today. I'm going to skip around a little bit. I'm going to start with something kind of at the end because I found a nice talk by Elder D. Todd Christofferson called Saving Your Life, which was a CES devotional for the young adults in September of 2014 delivered at BYU. Really, really nice talk. I really appreciate Elder Christofferson's addresses. He's very doctrinal, and I really learn a lot from him as I celebrate having these great leaders that can bless us and our youth. Anyway, so he talks about something that is discussed here in Matthew 10. Remember, again, he is addressing his apostles or his disciples who are to become apostles that will need to carry the burden of building the kingdom after the death and resurrection of Christ and going as far as they can up to the inevitable and prophesied apostasy. 
Christ lets them know later on that there will be a great falling away because there, there's just no way to build a worldwide network. There's not the technology at this time that can establish communication between different parts of the world. And anyway, eventually the apostates and the evil overcomes the 12, but not before they leave a great record, which has been a strength to believers from that time to this and will continue. So it's quite important that Christ keeps warning them of, of what they need to do in order to be worthy of this task to choose glory, to build the kingdom, to become Zion people themselves. This is the same invitation he's giving us. And now it is a much broader invitation to all of us. And this is, again, what we're hearing President Nelson talk about regularly, that we need to become a higher and holier people. We need to live a higher and holier way. We need to become more fit for the kingdom. And in doing this, we, like the apostles of old, can become instruments in the hands of God to do what he wants us to do in preparation for the coming of Christ a second time. So anyway, I'm going to quote some things from this talk that I, I really like. Starting with this. First are the Lord's words spoken just before he said, whosoever will save his life shall lose it. As recorded in each of the synoptic gospels, Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now we read that in one of the gospels last week. We read it again this week. So remember this verse. We're just reading this again as we study these chapters. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Luke adds the word daily. So that we find that in this chapter that we're studying in Luke, Luke 9. Let him take up his cross daily. In Matthew, the Joseph Smith translation expands this statement with the Lord's definition of what it means to take up one's cross. Quote, and now for a man to take up his cross is to deny himself all ungodliness and every worldly lust and keep my commandments. You know, I'm going to take a little break to make a comment here. I heard in a discussion once, a class discussion, and it was fairly recent, and they were discussing the First Strength of Youth pamphlet. I know, forgive me, that's still on my brain a lot. But one gentleman in the ward raised his hand and said, I think that the message of this pamphlet is that the amount of things, he was saying kind of like the circle that you could draw around things that are sins, is a lot smaller than it used to be, he said, or that it, than we thought it was, something like that. Now think about that. He's saying basically that there are fewer things that are sins than what we used to think. So once again, here's somebody who's misunderstanding the First Strength of Youth pamphlet entirely because he's saying now there is less that is prohibited by God or less that we shouldn't do. Now, it, again, the question is, what is it your goal? If you just don't want to be telestial, okay. I, I mean, there, there's not maybe that much. You've got to basically obey the Ten Commandments, and you're probably not going to be telestial. But do you want to be a Zion people? Do you want to seek that second birth, that to become born again? Do you want to be sanctified? Do we want to choose glory? Then it's not that we have this long list. And, and I don't like the idea of like, oh, there's a zillion commandments that we have to, you know, tick off each one on the list. Of course not. It's the principles 
of godliness. And that's what Joseph Smith is saying here. To deny all ungodliness, deny ourselves all ungodliness. That's, it's not a list of things that you need to check off. It's, it's yielding and submitting to God's will. It's being willing to come out from among them and be separate, to leave Babylon and to come into the wilderness to be refined of the Lord and to drop every worldly and temporal concern, to not worship two masters, to not seek the recognition of the world, you know, to, to become gods in truth and to become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. So anyway, it's interesting that some people are like, see, there's less that is against the rules. And you're like, yeah, but what does that really have to do with it? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, God has never been about technicalities. He's always been about saving his people. And there are non-negotiable terms by which that can be accomplished. So I was saddened to hear that comment because I thought, well, if you really are seeking sanctification, then there's actually much more to it. Not again in an anxiety-producing you know, list or legislative approach of like all these to-dos and all these don'ts, but instead this yielding of our hearts to God, this submission of our will to his. Again, in the terms we've been talking about, you know, it's abandoning liberation theology, which tends to surround us, acknowledging the superiority and the supreme nature of God and being willing to submit to his desires. This is what Christ did. Christ, who was much greater than we, who did nothing save, he had seen the Father do it before. Like, can we follow that path and deny ourselves all ungodliness instead of trying to have our cake and eat it too? I still want to indulge some worldly desires or appetites or whatever. And then I still want to go to the kingdom. Well, okay, so let's just repeat that. Joseph Smith translation expands this idea of taking up one's cross, quoting again, and now for a man to take up his cross is to deny himself all ungodliness and every worldly lust and keep my commandments. Continuing with Elder Christopherson's speech. This accords with James' declaration, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Again, there's nothing ever in the admonitions of God that says to be more like our neighbors, to blend in with the world. No, we're supposed to be a light set on the hill. We are supposed to be the salt of the earth that doesn't mix with the elements of worldliness or we lose our savor. So how sad that people are interpreting some things as if God is lessening the requirements. I mean, the requirements are fairly high, but we don't do them alone. The Lord will lift us in our efforts. He will strengthen our efforts. He will enable us through the power of the atonement to do what is required if it is the desire of our hearts. You know, I prayed constantly for my children as if they were growing up, and I do for my grandchildren not in fear, not in, in anxiety, but, you know, in the confidence that the Lord loves my children even more than I do. But the biggest thing that I prayed for, I think the most consistent thing that I prayed for was please help them develop the desire for the kingdom of God. Because if we have the desire, the Lord will enable us as we make our efforts. But that desire needs to be burning inside them. And we can pray that our desire will be firm, that our children, our grandchildren's desires will be firm. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm going back to Elder Christofferson's wonderful speech here. It is a daily life of avoiding all that is unclean 
while affirmatively keeping the two great commandments, love of God and fellow men, on which all other commandments hang. Thus, one element of losing our lives in favor of the greater life the Lord envisions for us consists in our taking up his cross day by day. That's being unspotted from the world, right? A second accompanying statement suggests that finding our life by losing it for his sake and the gospel's entails a willingness to make our discipleship open and public. I love that statement. A second accompanying statement in the scripture suggests that finding our life by losing it for his sake and the gospel's sake entails a willingness to make our discipleship open and public. He quotes again, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed." when he cometh in the glory of his father with the holy angels. And that's the Joseph Smith translation of that verse. That's so important. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in his glory. Now, how do we demonstrate shame? Because I think that most of us would not want to be ashamed of Christ or his gospel. And nevertheless, I see it sometimes with parents and children that parents are a little bit ashamed, it seems. I don't know that they would recognize that or that they would use that word, but it's it kind of covers it. When they don't testify to their children or defend the standards of the church or in you know decide this is the standard of the family. Now, I know that we need to pray about these things that they need to be done in wisdom and order, but very often I see parents kind of abdicate their parental authority, and part of it is because they are sort of ashamed to rely on the strength of the word, to rely on the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which are saving principles. So we have to be careful, and it's not just in that setting, of course. It can be in all kinds of settings in the world these days where we are persecuted for our beliefs, we are ridiculed, mocked, hated sometimes because of the principles of the gospel to which we ascribe to the standards that we try to live. So I'm going to just mention a few other parts of chapter 10 that I refer to so often that I like. This is Matthew. We're back in Matthew 10. That are instructions to the 12. And then we're going to actually go back to Elder Christofferson's talk in a moment. I love this verse in Matthew 10, verse 8. Freely ye have received, freely give. I have been so blessed in my life. And I have... You know, certainly, you know, our hearts break and we go through troubles and tribulation. That is a part of the world. We must have opposition in order to build muscle, in order to become more anti-fragile. But there is much that is given to each of us. The Lord is kind. He is generous if we have the eyes to see. We've talked about how important gratitude is. Well, here's one way to demonstrate our gratitude. Freely we have received freely give. And that has echoed in my mind throughout my life because I do feel like I have freely received of the goodness of God. And I want to give what I can. I don't have everything that I can give. I don't have some of the things to give that some other people might have to give. But what I can give, I want to give freely as opportunity presents itself because I have been given so much. And we have that beautiful hymn, of course, in the hymn book, Because I Have Been Given Much, I Too Must Give. That's the idea that is expressed here in in this chapter, Matthew 10, as Christ is talking to his disciples and preparing them to go forth, that they have received freely of Christ's inspiration, guidance, example, and he wants them to be free in giving that to others. Verse 10, here's another one that has to do with trust. 
The workman is worthy of his meat. Or as we read in other versions of this message, the laborer is worthy of his hire. So we talked about this earlier when we talked about consider the lilies. Christ is saying the same message there. Like they toil not, neither do they spin. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as one of these. In other words, stop worrying. And again, faith and fear cannot coexist. If we're going to trust the Lord, it takes care of the worry. But we have to practice it. We have to be affirmative in our efforts to reduce our fears and anxiety and build our trust and faith. It won't happen by itself. We have to, we have to impose that intentionally on our thoughts and exercise faith. It can be a physical exercise that is worth every particle of effort that we put forth. Brothers and sisters, I know we can do this. We can grow in our trust. We can believe him when he says the laborer is worthy of his hire. He will take care of us if we are on his errand. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be responsible and self-reliant and all those good things, but we should not worry when the task seems beyond our own strength. It is not our own arm that will save us. It is our reliance on our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, that ultimately become our safety if we are wise enough to see it. Now, there's another verse here, verse 16. I quote it all the time. I wanted my children to be very familiar with this verse. Verse 16, again, we realize he's talking to his disciples that will be the apostles of his ministry, but this is good for all of us. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Could it be any more clear, brothers and sisters, that not everybody is on our side? I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. I cannot tell you how important this verse is. You know, I've talked to so many people in the church who have, in our culture, have kind of missed this completely. And they they want to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. They want to assume that everybody is harmless. That's not what Christ is saying. This This is really, really important counsel. He's saying that there are wolves amongst the sheep. And some of them are cloaked as the sheep. And he's saying you need to be wise about it. You need to be wise as a serpent. That's a pretty intense metaphor there. Be wise as a serpent, but harmless as a dove. In other words, you better read the fine print in everybody's contract. Don't you go around giving the keys to the vault to just anybody who asks. Don't don't just assume that everybody is who they present pretend to be. That doesn't mean we go around condemning people. And that doesn't mean we can never trust. It means we need to be wise as a serpent about it. And trust should be incrementally bestowed after we have demonstrated or the person has demonstrated consistency over time. That's my favorite definition of trust, consistency over time. But we see some people who immediately want to trust everybody and they get stabbed in the back at some point. Let's not let's not be naive, brothers and sisters. God doesn't want us to be foolish. Now, when he says harmless as a dove, what does that mean? Well, don't put any fine print in your contract. You need to be crystal clear all the way through, like nothing hidden. You know, what you see is what you get. We should be completely honest and harmless in all our dealings to everybody else. We're not deceptive. We don't lie. We don't cheat. We're not trying to take advantage of anybody. We try to deal justly, to be fair, to be kind. Of course, we should be harmless as doves. But he's saying not everybody is. So you'd better not lose that kindness, that goodness. But don't assume everybody else has it. I've told this story before, I think, but when one of my daughters 
my daughter Caitlin had finished her master's degree and she was taking a job in Delaware. And she had lived on her own for several years. So she had a car, she had some furniture and so on. So she and her dad were going to drive her stuff back east to her new place where she was taking that job. And then Chris was going to fly back home after he got her a little bit settled. And I was able to go out and, and visit later. But to get her settled, Chris went on his own with Caitlin. And as they are packed up and ready to go, you know, we're in the front yard and I'm just giving some final hugs to Caitlin. And one of the last hugs before she hopped in the truck with her dad, I said something that I had not intended consciously to say, but it sort of just came out with one of those last hugs. I said, don't trust anyone. <laughs> and, and she kind of, you know, startled and she said, mom, <laughs> mom, what do you mean? And, and I, and I stopped and I said, okay, I wasn't, thinking I was going to say that, but I'm not going to retract it. You know what I mean. And we had talked about this all the time that our kids have been growing up. This verse is so valuable. Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. It didn't mean that I didn't want her to ever trust anybody. It was that she needed to be cautious. She was going to a place where she didn't know people. And while the church is wonderful in those situations, and she had made contact already with the single adult bishop, the young single adult bishop, and she became great friends with them and ended up being a really study president and met her husband out there. So, you know, good things happened, but I wanted her to be wise as a serpent, to not just assume that everything people said was what they really meant or that their actions could be trusted until they had demonstrated that. And that's an incremental investment of trust, right? You venture a little bit and see what the response is. And if it's not good, you haven't ventured very much. So you're okay. We need to teach this to our children. There are so many wolves out there. They need not to believe that everything that somebody tells them is for their good. They need not to believe everything they hear in school. They need not to believe what they hear in the media. I mean, especially social media, for Pete's sake, they should be wise as serpents. And we need to help them have that discernment. And again, remember, this ties into something I talked about on the Follow Him podcast there with Matthew 6 and 7, to judge. They need to judge. How do you become wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove if you don't make a judgment? How do you use your agency correctly if you don't make a judgment? So go back and review that if necessary, but please teach your children to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves as we ourselves emulate that for them. And then, okay, I'm going to stop ranting about that because that's a really important thought and I quote it all the time. <laughs> it's very good business counsel too, by the way. But anyway, just in our daily walk, it's important. Then in verse 19... This is a beautiful message too. Take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. In verse 24, it is not ye that speak, but the spirit of your father which speaketh in you. Now, I read that same idea in the Doctrine and Covenants when I was first starting to read the scriptures about age 16 in section 84, verse 85. And remember, section 84 is the oath and covenant of the priesthood. So he's talking again to his priesthood holders, but this is for all of us. And I took it very personally for myself. So this is verse 85 of section 84. Neither take ye thought beforehand what ye shall say. You can see that that's very much the same message here. But treasure up in your minds continually the words of life, and it shall be given you in the very hour that portion that shall be meted unto every man. So I love that phrase. I mean, I love the whole idea here, but treasure up in your mind continually the words of life. I love that phrase. 
And I think that it means something very specific. Of course, it means to study the words of the gospel, study the scriptures, study the words of the prophets, study the words of Christ. Learn the doctrine. Use judgment. Use discernment to understand what is truly meant, how to apply these principles. We don't want to just be parrots who can just mouth the words, but we want to think about them. We want to be critical thinkers. Remember, we want to be able to discern truth from error and to understand and reject sophistry. So we have to be critical thinkers as we learn the doctrine so that we can understand where the false notes are. And let's not forget to memorize if we can. We can memorize verses of scripture. We can memorize hymns. And as we treasure those things up continually, then they are available in us and the Lord can use what we have treasured up. Now, he can also give us revelation on the go. And I've talked about times where I needed an answer, I needed a response, and I would pray so hard in the moment to get it, and the Lord would give me something. But I believe that that was because I was making an effort to treasure up continually the words of life. So he could use what I had learned and bring it to my mind in the times that it's necessary, but he could also teach me new things in the moment that were necessary if I followed this protocol, if I took it seriously. And I and I see this as tying in so much to becoming an instrument in the hands of the Lord. How are we going to be useful to the Lord if we don't study the doctrines, if we don't learn what they mean, if we don't become critical thinkers so that we can apply them correctly and discern the false notes of sophistry when we encounter them? Love that verse. Okay, let's go on. Verse 28 in Matthew again. Now I talked about I'm going to roll into something here that I talked about, I know, in the Follow Him podcast, but it's <laughs> I just mentioned it every time I can. But first, let's start with verse 28. And I don't even remember, did I talk about this one on Follow Him or not? But I know I did the next one. Verse 28, fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. This is so important. I know I've discussed this before, but just quickly again, this is high level. God is saying, I don't even want to worry about the people who can kill you. And that, that is high level. I mean, think about it. Don't, don't worry about those that can destroy the body. Do you know what they can do to my body? Do you know what bad people do to other people's bodies in this world? Well, sure, he knows what they do. And it's horrible what man's inhumanity to man can do and the terrible things that can be inflicted on others by evil people. Nevertheless, Christ is saying, don't worry about it. It's temporary. Death is not the big problem. The big problem is unrepented sin. And that's exactly what verse 28 is about. Fear him which is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. And as I would ask my students at the Y, I've told the story so many times, who can do that? And the first answer they would always give would be Satan. And I'd say, think again. Satan has not power that you don't yield him. I know I mentioned this just not long ago when we talked about temptation repeating it, if you'll forgive me. It's so important that we take this verse to heart and teach our children. We don't need to be afraid, even unto death, because God will restore every hair of our heads. Even if we're eaten by the fishes of the sea, every bit of us will come back together in perfect form in the resurrection. Death is not the enemy. That does not mean we should be careless with our lives. That does not mean we should be foolish of course, we need to try to teach our children to be wise and, and protect them when it's our stewardship to do so. Again, nevertheless, I'm saying that a lot today, we need not to be afraid. The only thing 
God is saying it right here. The only thing we should fear is the one who can destroy both our soul and body in hell. And so were my students right? I'd say no. Think again. It's not Satan. He doesn't have that power unless we yield it to him through rebellion. If we don't repent of our sins, then we can yield our personal souls, our the territory of our souls to Satan, and he can destroy us. But we will have allowed the enemy in the gates. And we can reject him if we repent. And if we change and grow and become, we confess, forsake, make restitution, and move forward in greater righteousness. As I've told people this over the years, some of them have said, yeah, we should like embroider that on a pillow or something or put that on the side of the wall, is that the only thing we have to fear is unrepented sin. And yeah, it probably would make a nice sign or a nice pillow. It's true, brothers and sisters, right here. Let us teach our children. And we live in a world of fear. People are terrified all the time. And it's so tragic because they are not relying on the truthfulness of, of this message right here. That our safety is in Christ. It is in our obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Following the light, whether it's the light of Christ with which we're born or the greater light that comes when we know the gospel. People who live in the light and follow the light do not need to be afraid. Fear is, is like we're not even acknowledging how much safety there is in gospel doctrine, in the gospel covenants, in our Savior Jesus Christ, and in the great plan of our merciful God. So I hope you have lots of discussions about this as the years pass with your children and with yourselves. We don't need to be afraid. And people who are afraid make bad decisions. Fear is a very powerful emotion. It gets in the way of our best reasoning. Don't do it. Don't do it. Process that pain and fear through prayer, through talking with a trusted listener, writing it out. But don't land in your fear. Get past it. Put it on the altar and exercise trust in the Lord. And as we do that, we can move forward in greater sense and, and rational thinking and, of course, in greater trust in God. And then, I know I did talk about this with Follow Him, this beautiful, beautiful part makes me cry, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall to the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. So tender, so beautiful. If we are not feeling the love of the Lord, as I talked about that week, we need to change things in our lives. It is not that the love is not there. It is that our receptors are bent. We can fix that. And then let's talk about the last big lesson here that I use again <laughs> regularly with clients. Matthew 10 is a treasure trove. <laughs> so many of these chapters are full of great stuff, but the Matthew 10 truly is one chapter that I know well and I quote often that has actually quite a few different applications. But here we're talking about verse 34. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Now, this is the Prince of Peace we're talking about. So let's, let's not forget that. But he is going to make a specific point that is such a saving principle, brothers and sisters, and it seems to be a mystery in our culture all too often. Let's go on. I'm going to repeat, actually, verse 34 first. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Verse 35. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. 
Now, that is tremendous stuff. As I've told you before, my husband had that great insight many years ago when he was reading Ether 1227 again, and he said, where God says, I give unto men weakness, he could just as accurately have said, I give unto men parents. Parents aren't perfect, and even the best intended parents you know, mess up their kids a little bit, and thank heavens it's part of the plan so that they can go to Christ, they can be humble, and they can have faith, and Christ can make their weaknesses strong, just as he can do for us as parents and as he could do for our parents. So every generation limps a little bit because none of us have perfect parents and we all get hurt or we get hang-ups or get maladapted or whatever. And the point is that Christ can help us heal and we can become powerful through him as we overcome our weaknesses through the atonement of Christ. But sometimes family members are not interested in doing their own part to heal. And it's not that the unintentional injuries, it can be, well, I'm not going to judge their motives because I don't know how capable or incapable they are. We leave that to God to judge. Nevertheless, as we make appropriate righteous judgments that are temporal judgments, as we discuss there and follow him, we must understand when people are dangerous. We must understand when there are toxic relationships in our lives. And we need to follow the commandment of God that In this case, the gospel of Jesus Christ can act as a sword to the dividing asunder of healthy and unhealthy relationships. God does not want us to be chronic victims. We need to understand that, brothers and sisters, that charity is not victimhood. I don't know why that is so hard sometimes for us to talk about in our culture. We talk about turning the other cheek to the point of being bruised and bloody, and we don't give an alternative, which is sometimes to separate Sometimes to distance ourselves from people who are destructive or hurtful or living a telestial law or people who are toxic. I mean, all of those things are sort of synonyms, right? But we need to set ourselves apart. Look at this. Verse 37. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And what does he mean? Because I would say that people that I talk to, generally speaking, are certainly trying to live a worthy life. And they are often, you know, doing really good keeping of the covenants. Nevertheless, they are trying to do that while they maintain a relationship which is incredibly destructive. And in doing so, they're they're limiting their ability to come further down the path of healing, to become more empowered, more anti-fragile, more like the Savior, because they continue to try to maintain relationships that are not healthy. And that is not the will of God. It's not the will of God. And ultimately, it does fall into this category. Do you love me enough to draw a line between yourself and people who are not helping you become whole, who are not helping you fulfill your stewardships as husbands and wives, as fathers and mothers, as healthy brothers and sisters, as healthy sons and daughters? And if we cannot be healthy in that relationship, As God says, sometimes our enemies are those in our own households. And it might be subtle. In fact, that's the trickier part is when it is subtle. They don't seem to be the worst enemies, but they are too demanding or too critical. Or they expect, you know, kind of a crazy devotion at the risk of our devotion to our primary stewardships. This can happen with parents of married people who demand a kind of allegiance or loyalty that interferes with the marriage. And that is not the will of God. God is always telling us to, you know, to leave our fathers and mothers and cleave to our spouse. And yet so often, you know, the the family of origin gets in the way and and a seeming loyalty to that family of origin 
that is demanding unhealthy allegiance gets in the way or may get in the way of our parenting. And I talk to people who are in this situation like all the time, really. And I mentioned that I'm working on this book to have healthy emotional boundaries. It will it will talk about even those relationships. It's not just in marriage, but it's also in our extended families or with our family of origin that we need to separate sometimes. So he goes on and says, verse 38, he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. And so it is taking on a cross. We discussed this before, but it's it's another kind of taking up that cross when it's like, you know what? Right now, these aren't going to be my my family. I need to separate or draw some space between them. It's obviously a matter of degree. And some, it's kind of a minor adjustment. You can still have a relationship with them, but you have to not be as controlled by them or feeling that you are required to have such a great allegiance to them. That could be it. Or it could be a more drastic separation, depending on the circumstance. So you want to be thoughtful and prayerful about that, of course. But be rational about it and recognize that our culture, which says constantly we have to be like loyal to family, that it's not understanding what we talked about last week, which when Christ was there with the crowd and somebody is saying, hey, your mother and brothers and sisters are outside. And what did Christ say? Who are my brothers and sisters? And then he looked around at the disciples and said, these are my brothers and sisters. And sometimes that is the reality. Sometimes we need to substitute our blood-related relatives for people who can fulfill those relationships in our lives that may not be related to us by blood, but can be healthy in their support of us and our families or our stewardships. So let me read. Well, first of all, I'm going to say this, which became a little confusing to people. And it's been interesting because it's wonderful to hear the people are listening to our prophets and trying to incorporate it. But I know this kind of brought this subject up again. So this was the fifth suggestion that President Nelson made in his speech, The Power of Spiritual Momentum, and maybe you remember it too because it was very clear. He said, end conflict in our personal lives. Quoting from the prophet, I repeat my call to end the conflicts in your life. Exercise the humility, courage, and strength required both to forgive and to seek forgiveness. The Savior has promised that if we forgive men their trespasses, our Heavenly Father will also forgive us. And then he says, two weeks from today, we celebrate Easter. Between now and then, I invite you to seek an end to a personal conflict that has weighed you down. Okay, now that was a beautiful invitation, and I completely support the prophet. But that does not mean that we are to accept toxic relationships. And too often, I've had people come to me and say, well, but the prophet wants us to end the conflict or so on. And I'm like, yes, he does. Are you causing conflict? Then you should stop. Are you being unforgiving? Then you should stop. You should forgive. If you need to repair something that is damage that you have done or injury that you might have inflicted or carelessness or neglect or whatever, yes, please end that. Do what you can to be clean before God. But that does not mean that the other person is going to all of a sudden become healthy. You know how God doesn't want us to marry or to be unequally yoked with unbelievers? Well, neither does he want us to be unequally yoked to extended family members that are toxic or hurtful or destructive, if they're critical or overly demanding, or they expect us to be there every holiday or every Sunday or whatever. Now, I know that this is personal, and you guys can figure it out if you're prayerful and thoughtful, but please consider if if maybe you are expecting too much from your married sons and daughters or your adult children. And make sure that your relationship with them is not toxic. Make sure you're not critical of them or their spouse. 
You can change those things. You can become a safer family member for everybody. And then if you are in the receiving end of some unhealthy family relationships, listen to the words of Elder Christofferson. This is from the same speech that I quoted before, Saving Your Life. I really think it's great. Look at this. He says, In one way or another, your superior love of Christ has required the sacrifice of relationships that were dear to you, and you have shed many tears. Yet with your own love undiminished, you hold steady under this cross, showing yourself unashamed of the Son of God. Look how he's bringing all those ideas together. I love it. Now, he does talk a bit about people who, in joining the church, have had family members disown them or, you know, shun them or whatever. So it's certainly that is one way that that this scripture is fulfilled, that if we have people who, when we've joined the church, don't want to have anything to do with us again, we have paid a heavy price for our beliefs. But then he goes on and says, many of us became members of the church without opposition, perhaps as children. The challenge we may confront is remaining loyal to the Savior and his church in the face of parents, in-laws, brothers or sisters, or even our children whose conduct, beliefs, or choices make it impossible to support both him and them. I'm going to repeat that. That is so well put. Let's really ponder this. The challenge we may confront is remaining loyal to the Savior and his church in the face of parents, in-laws, brothers or sisters, or even our children whose conduct, beliefs, or choices make it impossible to support both him and them. Lots of examples of this. Please think of the ones that you are familiar with. It is not a question of love, Elder Christofferson continues. We can and must love one another as Jesus loves us. As he said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. So although familial love continues, relationships may be interrupted. And according to the circumstances, even support or tolerance at times may be suspended for the sake of our higher love. This is about putting first things first, putting our love for God above even familial love, even parental love. Are we subsidizing or enabling behavior in others because we continue to tolerate the relationship that is not healthy or that takes advantage of us or someone else or that expects us to tolerate behaviors that are destructive? Now, we have adult children who are doing things that are not what we want, you know, our relationship with them has changed. The stewardship has changed. It doesn't mean we can't love, support, and even offer our opinion as guided by the Holy Ghost, moved upon by the Holy Ghost, see section 121. Nevertheless, it's not our place to just go and control our children as they grow up. So this is mostly referring to like children that are still in our home or that are still living with our financial support. And if we are supporting them financially and providing for their welfare, And while they are doing things to destroy themselves, then we are not really getting that first things first going in a good way. This is tricky. This is tricky. I've talked to a lot of parents about this, but be prayerful and, you know, ponder, pray and apply the principles correctly that sometimes we need to 
withdraw, as Elder Christofferson says. Let's go back and find his words. What does he say? That sometimes we have to remain loyal to the Savior in the face of family members whose conduct, beliefs, and choices make it impossible to support both him and them. And then later on, he says, so although familial love continues, relationships may be interrupted, and according to the circumstances, even support or tolerance at times may be suspended for the sake of our higher love. That is such an important statement. Continuing, Elder Christofferson says, in reality, the best way to help those we love, the best way to love them, is to continue to put the Savior first. If we cast ourselves adrift from the Lord out of sympathy for loved ones who are suffering or distressed, then we lose the means by which we might have helped them. I think I may have mentioned this before, but I had a couple in my office years ago who had a teenager that was involved in all kinds of covenant-breaking behavior. And at one point, the father said, that, you know, this son really hated the church at the time and was very rebellious against the teachings of the church or anything like that. And the father was, you know, passionate about his love for his son. And he said, I'll leave the church if that's what my son needs. And I, <laughs> I had not read Elder Christopherson's talk at the time, but I would, I just, I was so sad to hear that. And I did say, I said, how could that possibly help your son if you cut yourself off from the blessings of heaven? If you cut yourself off from the covenant, from the power that comes with that covenant, from the sealing powers, how can that help? You're going to cut yourself off from God to try to save a drowning son? I know you love your son, but you love your son. The best thing you can do is keep your covenants. It is to be loyal to Christ. That's what this is all about, is what we're talking about. Finally, Elder Christofferson ends, if, however, we remain firmly rooted in faith in Christ, we are in a position both to receive and to offer divine help. Okay, I just want to say a few things about being an instrument in the hand of God, because that is the admonition here for these apostles, soon to be apostles. They are disciples at this point in the New Testament. But it is for each of us who are the disciples of Christ. Again, remembering President Nelson's wonderful Fireside to the youth last year where he said we should define ourselves in three ways, child of God, child of the covenant, disciple of Christ. So I've loved this phrase to be an instrument in the hands of God, and it has really resonated in me from the time I read this in Alma 29.9 in my youth. I know that which the Lord hath commanded me, and I glory in it. I do not glory of myself, but I glory in that which the Lord hath commanded me. Yea, and this is my glory, that perhaps... I may be an instrument in the hands of God to bring some soul to repentance, and this is my joy. Now, there's a great story by Elder Don Clark that I read from October 2006 conference called Becoming Instruments in the Hands of God, and we don't really have time for it today in its entirety. I'm going to post the quotes from today on Patreon again, because there are some beautiful quotes today, and then I'll put this entire story there too. Of course, you can look it up. Elder Don Clark, October 2006, Becoming Instruments in the Hand of God, but basically talks about his maternal grandfather, who at 34 years of age, lost his sight. And he was a farmer, and they really were struggling. It was a difficult time, 1919, during big economic hardships in the country, and so many people were going broke. So he was up against the wall, and a miracle happened through someone that he would never have expected it to come through, who became an instrument in the hands of the Lord. It's really very tender story that I'll post there, or you can look it up. But he says something really nice at the end. He goes, I have learned that a person does not need to have a church calling, 
an invitation to help someone or even good health to become an instrument in God's hands. And then he says, how can we become instruments? First, we need to have a love for God's children. And then he repeats the lawyer asking the Savior, Master, which is a great commandment, and the Savior's response, love the Lord with all thy heart, all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like unto it, love thy neighbors thyself. And then this statement by Joseph F. Smith, charity or love is the greatest principle in existence. If we can lend a helping hand to the oppressed, if we can aid those who are despondent and in sorrow, if we can uplift and ameliorate the condition of mankind, it is our mission to do it. It is an essential part of our religion to do it. I really love that. When we feel love for God's children, we are given opportunities. Now, there are some other nice quotes I'm just going to put on Patreon, but you know the message here. I am going to add that while it is easy for us to find admonitions in the gospel that talk about showing love for others by giving and doing service, we do also need to see another message in scripture that we don't talk about nearly as much because, I mean, it can be abused and we can overdo it, of course, but if we put things in wisdom and order and we seek the spirit and the application of these principles, we know that sometimes charity is withdrawing. That's what Elder Christofferson was just talking about. Sometimes it is creating some space between us and others, protecting ourselves from being exploited or injured or hurt or interfering within a stewardship that we may have, protecting others from being exploited as well. Certainly our own children, our spouse, or others for whom we have a stewardship. So brothers and sisters, let's not get caught into that kind of cultural tradition that we often have that that charity is always giving. Sometimes it is drawing a line in the sand. Sometimes it is staying steadfast and firm in our standards against the opposition so we, we understand both sides of charity. The Lord gives and the Lord withholds for his purposes to be fulfilled. And we need to be inspired to do that. Some of it is basically common sense, I will say, but it should always be prayerfully applied so that the Lord can speak to us and help us do this correctly. We can do it, brothers and sisters. We can do this. We can choose glory. We can make wise judgments. We can be critical thinkers. And in doing so, we can become more fit for the kingdom. We can build Zion upon the earth so that we are prepared to welcome Christ when he comes. Let him come, brothers and sisters. Let him come. As ever, thanks to my husband, Chris Anderson, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care.